The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Psychoanalysis and philosophy share a deep interest in what it means to be human and what it means to be in the world. At the heart of both philosophical and psychological investigations lie Kant's three questions. What can I know? What ought I do? And what can I hope for? In this interview, Dr. Maria Velasca walks us through the connection between our psychological understanding of ourselves and our philosophical understanding of the world around us. She's a philosopher at the University of Hertfordshire, and her book, Wittgenstein and Lacan at the Limit, Meaning and Astonishment, brings together philosophy and psychoanalysis on the significance and the challenges of the experiences of astonishment. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Maria Balasca to Philosophy for Our Times. You started out as a practicing psychotherapist, and then you switched to philosophy. What made you shift careers? I'm not sure if I ever actually took a decision to shift careers. I mean, yeah, I'm not... I'm not practicing uh, anymore since I started my PhD, um, but in some way, um, psychoanalysis or psychotherapy has always been in the background of, the, of my philosophy work. Yeah, so I work on the philosophy of psychoanalysis, um, forms of philosophy informs my thinking of, of psychotherapy and psychotherapy and my history in psychotherapy, but also my um, reading of especially Freud and Lacan, inform my understanding of um, issues in philosophy. And of course, there are a few other philosophers whose work sort of spans both fields. Two people come to mind, Jonathan Lear, uh, Cornelius Castoriadis, another Greek philosopher. Apart from there being sort of philosophical questions around psychoanalysis, is there a sort of deeper connection between the two, you think? Are they related in any way? Yeah, I think there's an obvious connection, which is the subject matter, the human being. Um, so I think that what Kant calls the central question of philosophy, what is a human being, and it's, it's three aspects of um, what can I know, what ought I to do, what may I hope for, are very much and should be in the heart of um, any investigation of the psyche. I think that's the, that's the obvious connection. So philosophy and language, uh, philosophy of language and the experience of astonishment are two of your key areas of interest, at least in your earlier work. 
you also have experience working with children in this context. So what did that teach you about language and astonishment and you know, how has that experience affected your, your work in philosophy? I'm so glad you asked that question because the um, topic of, of children or, or talk of children um, is something that is really missing in philosophy. And I think that's for obvious reasons that have to do with what it has meant to do philosophy and like, who has been doing philosophy. Um, um, so, so I'm glad to say something about that, to be able to say something about that. I can't, I can't think of any particular ways um, in which it has, like to give you particular propositions, but um, I think it does, um, it does make you more sensitive to the complexity of what it means to be in the world. Because, you know, in philosophy, we tend to draw these very clear-cut distinctions between the emotional life and the life of the mind, so thinking, rationality, and then you have the body and bodily sensations, and then you have how do all these things relate to others. But I think when you are looking at a child and their main way of being in the world, which, uh, for example, let's take the, the case of playing, um, it's, uh, it's impossible to draw these distinctions that are so clear-cut in the case of the adult, uh, because the child, when while playing, the child is thinking, uh, is processing and, and, and uh, exploring emotions, and is also connecting to others through the body. Yeah, so I think it's a way to, 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 to make you more sensitive to that complexity, which so often is kind of... Um, lost in, in philosophy. So in some ways, philosophy has focused too much on the adult sort of mode yeah, of being when right? it comes to like thinking of what it is to be a human. Exactly. But, but I, I also think it's important to bring in philosophy when you look at the child. So recently, and I think it may be the first time, definitely one of the few times, I saw um, a remark on children in Kierkegaard's work, the concept of anxiety. It's just a small, short, uh, brief remark. But what he's saying there, you know, Kierkegaard has this thing that, that uh, human beings are not just body and psyche, but they are also spirit. And, and he sees anxiety in children, uh, which, which he um, uh, discusses as their attraction to the enigmatic and the monstrous as a sign of, of spirit in children. So how the child is already a case of the human being that we then focus on. Astonishment is, is also a kind of weird philosophical topic, one that not many people work on. Is that also a more, uh, an experience that is more akin to kind of being a child and being sort of discovering the world? What sort of drew you to, to study this somewhat neglected kind of... Yeah, I mean, you're right that certain kinds of astonishment do. Perhaps in its roots too, I'm not sure. I haven't thought about that in relation to children. But um, my interest in astonishment was my entry point to a discussion about the limits of language. And so I was interested in a particular kind of wonder that I called astonishment. We could also call extreme wonder, where that links to a difficulty of expression in language. Ordinarily, when we speak of wonder, we uh, think of things that are unusual, curious, rare, novelties. And, and there, you don't really have a difficulty of expression. Because if you ask me, 
what is your wonder about? And I say to you, well, I just found out about the quantum world and all this time I've been living in the Newtonian world. Uh, that's, that, that satisfies you and me in terms of what is it. But when it comes to the examples I have in mind, like, for example, um, something that Wittgenstein mentions, the wonder at the existence of the world, that anything exists in the first place, you kind of knew that already. You knew that yesterday and the day before and a few years ago. So why does this suddenly take on this uh, astonishing character? And there, you may have a problem with language and the sense that there is something you can't express. And I, I take a different position. I think expression is possible, but that's my way to say something about that. Do you think all of philosophy is a sort of product of this kind of astonishment, that things that we've taken for granted mm. and we all assume we suddenly realize mm. their peculiarity or their weirdness or the assumptions that lie behind it? Yeah. I mean, there's this um, phrase in the Theaetetus, right, that uh, philosophy originates in wonder, uh, that Socrates um, says. So I think you're very right that that lies in the origin of philosophy. But of course, there you've got an interesting tension Again, that has to do with what is that wonder? Is it wonder like the wonder we find in science? So is it a kind of aporia that can be solved by uh, looking into things? Or is it a different kind of wonder that doesn't, um, that doesn't connect to answerable questions as uh, wonder does in the case of science? Nature sort of is often something mm. that gives us mm. these kinds of experiences. And you're developing an interest in the relationship between humans and nature and the fact that we're kind of increasingly losing a connection with it and mm. how, how is that affecting us and you know, what, has, what have we learned from the past year of being sort of maybe trying to reconnect with nature as mm. much as we can by going out in parks and things like that. Mm. I think one danger always when one um, talks about nature is a romanticizing nature. So in some sense, I think nature has always been something that we had to fight against, um, that we had to uh, shape so as to uh, survive. So that was always the case. But I think there's something happening with modernity, and more specifically with the not just with technology, but with the spirit of technology and the spirit of capitalism, which is that nature, like all other things, is just reduced to what serves our narrow interests. Like Heidegger says, it, it becomes the standing reserve, just ready to exploit for things for profit. I mean, apart from the very serious consequences like climate change, uh, we, we all know that, um, I think it has a, a deeper kind of ethical consequence too in terms of losing this um, relation to nature as other and, and um, reducing it to something that serves our interests. And I think that's something important and perhaps with the, I don't know, that's more of a sociological perhaps question, like perhaps with the pandemic there was a sense that something is lost on that level and need to return to nature as this other. So that, that's, that's kind of moving in a different direction from how some people see it. So some mm. people argue that, well, the, the, the problem has been that we see ourselves as separate to nature, nature is there for us to use and, and kind of instrumentalize, as, as you say. And uh, the solution to that is to 
remind ourselves somehow that we're also part of nature, that we're, we're also natural beings and we're part of it, and therefore, you know, it, nature isn't this other. But do you think, in fact, the right way to go is, is not to remind ourselves that we're also natural, but to kind of see nature as this kind of other, as you say? I think, I think there is a way to respond to this by bringing both the things that you just um, mentioned as, are, are, as opposites, to bring them in as two sides of the same coin. Because I think that reminding ourselves that we are what I, I like to call earthlings, earthly creatures, uh, is a reminder that we are conditioned and therefore that things are other to us. And that part of what it means to be conditioned, part of what um, these conditions or this conditioning is, is the otherness of these things that we have to respond to. We think of language as important in terms of communicating our sort of subjective psychological states, our experiences. And, but at the same time, we're trying to do that through some kind of universal system in which we're trying to describe very particular, very unique types of experiences. Are the narratives that we give through language always true to, to those experiences? I would want to say yes, but I would need to clarify or, or, or make some of the words you mentioned, like the inner and, and, and language, um, a bit more complex than we usually tend to think. First of all, perhaps also going back to the case of the child, I think that there is a, a temptation to think of the inner and the outer as uh, to draw a very sharp distinction. And then language becomes this tool of translating what is inner to what then is outer. But what that fails to see is that the inner is already intelligible. It is already shaped in a way that makes it uh, intelligible to us and to others. And I'm thinking here of the psychoanalyst Bion who looks into thinking and what thinking is, and looks into babies and mothers, and how the mother is the thinking for the baby. So that's what she does. She becomes what maybe philosophy of mind they would call the extended mind of the baby. And through that bond with the baby, she thinks for the baby and makes things intelligible, including itself, including its own body and what the baby is doing for itself and for herself. So I think that's, so I think if we take that into account and if we look at languages more than just a tool for a presentation, then my answer would be yes. So, so language was already present in the, in the yeah. inner. Yeah. And it well, is in something. First nature, second nature, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what sort of projects are you working on currently? Two projects. I'm, I'm finishing a book on wonder and anxiety as uh, encounters or experiences that can have some kind of existential merit. So that can teach us something about the possibilities of the human being. And I'm also just about to start a project on nature that you mentioned earlier, um, which looks into what, we, what it is that we lose when we replace real nature with man-made copies of nature. And of course, the question that comes straight after what I just said is, is there such thing as real nature? Can we even draw the distinction between real and fake or, or man-made? So that, these are the new projects. You mentioned uh, Theotetus earlier as a mm. dialogue by Plato. Being Greek and being a philosopher, do you find you have like a special connection to the ancient Greek philosophical tradition? Do these texts 
uh, are these texts still alive for you? Do you revisit them in your philosophical uh, projects? Mm. I think actually uh, being Greek has done two things. It has impeded my relation to this text <laughs> and enabled my relation to the text. It has enabled it obviously through the Greek language and I feel more and more grateful for the fact that I uh, learned ancient Greek when I was uh, as a child. And of course, knowing being a native Greek speaker also helps with that. But it has also impeded it in the sense that when something is so close to you, you tend to overlook it. Um, and I think it, it took some time for me to go back to what is close uh, to home. And I think there's a strange relation between Greece and those, and those texts right now. To, to some extent, they are treated more as... Um, uh, things that you do in philology rather than in philosophy. So that's an added difficulty. But God, yeah, I mean, whether they matter and how they matter, I wouldn't know where to start. I'll just say this, how, how important and moving I find that it's not only that you find thoughts that you yourself have struggled with, but that you find thoughts clearly expressed. And I think one of the things that deeply moves me as a philosopher and probably moves every philosopher is to see a clear thought because you know all the work that has been done. And so when sometimes I read Plato or Aristotle and I find that, just the idea that they have, that someone 2,000 years ago has done all the process that I am struggling with, um, yeah, that's astonishing. <laughs> Do you, do you have a philosopher that you think your views mostly align with? I mean, to me, it's not so much a matter of views, because that's another discussion, topic of, of discussion, I suppose, whether, whether philosophy is about a theory or about a view, or whether it's about a way of thinking, uh, a method of thinking, perhaps. And when it comes to that, I think the two philosophers I've been most influenced by and kind of speak to me most is Wittgenstein and Heidegger. Wittgenstein because of the almost relentless search for clarity, um, which I really respect and admire. And also his way of looking into, looking into a philosophical problem by looking at it rather than by diving in. And Heidegger, because I think he's very sensitive to how our existence is conditioned. Um, and yeah, I, I find him a very deep thinker in relation to, to that. Maria Belasco, thank you very much. Thank you for your lovely questions. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.